We're looking this morning at the subject, the joy of service, and you'll note from your bulletin outline that service to others issues from a humble heart. Now here is the connection to our study last week, humility, and now service is an outgrowth of a humble heart. Proud people have a problem serving others. Now notice, I did not say they have a problem giving money. They may have that problem too. But service has to do with personal willingness to get one's hands dirty and not just open the pocketbook and throw money at a problem. Hollywood celebrities will often get involved in a philanthropic endeavor, but always, always with a photo op, so they can highlight their involvement. Money may not be in the picture at all, but the publicity is worth thousands. So the cameras are there, flashing away. But the kind of service the Bible promotes has nothing to do with personal prestige or recognition. Thus, humility, you see. That's how it plugs, plugs together. You all remember the incident of Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. The disciples had rented a room on the orders of Jesus so that he with them might celebrate Passover. This was the Passover of the very night in which Jesus would be arrested and tried and crucified. John testified it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. John 13, verse 1. In verse 3 and following, he continues, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so, in other words, it's a statement. He knows who he is. You, you get that? He knew he had come from the Father, was now going back. I know who I am. I am God's Son. So what does he do? It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John 13, verse 3 through 5. It's a good statement from John. Because John is saying, whatever you see here in terms of condescension did not, did not destroy the dignity of God the Son. Humility did not destroy him. It is, in essence, the heart of God in action. Not only Peter, but I suspect the jaws dropped of many of those twelve disciples that evening when they saw their Lord and their teacher on his knees, moving a basin from person to person, performing the task of the most menial of all household servants. There's, there's a pecking order among the servants. And the guy on the bottom of the totem pole is the foot washer. And only Peter had the wherewithal to voice his consternation. 
Lord, verse 6, are you going to wash my feet? You can see in his question, there's, there's the sense of incredulity here. You see, Peter saw the utter absurdity of this gesture. The dirty feet of sinners and God's Son kneeling to wash them just... <laughs> I'm sorry, it did not compute, as we would say in our day. Lord, Lord, this isn't right. Uh, I should be washing your feet. And are you going to wash mine? Please, please stop this. Please stand up. Th this is embarrassing. Well, embarrassing or no, none of the disciples, including Peter, had volunteered to perform this most basic of common courtesies whenever a guest was invited into your home. None of them was about to kneel before the feet of their fellow disciples and wash the street grime off. Better if we just all kind of sit around the table, dirty feet and all, such was their attitude and such was their pride. I'm not doing that. You do that. I'm not doing that. You do that. We can just think that even if they didn't do something physically like pointing their thumbs to the next person, mentally, they were doing that. Jesus gave perspective to their pride with this analysis. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He didn't wait for an answer. He gave. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. John 13, verse 12 through 17. Now the moral of the story here is not, it is not that we should establish an ordinance of foot washing as some churches have done. But as Jesus explained, I have set you an example. Now an example not just in this particular of foot washing, but in many, many other necessary services. We do not live in an arid climate where people walk around with open-toed sandals. Our feet in America are covered with socks or stockings and encased in shoe leather. The point of Jesus' example is this. I, your Lord, I, your teacher, have washed your feet. I have performed the menial role of a servant which all of you should have done, but were too proud to do.
In our meditation reading this morning, the mother of James and John petitioned Jesus to elevate her two sons to his right and left hand, respectively, when his kingdom was established. And Matthew, the author of this history, then indicts himself, himself, when he adds, when the ten heard about this, that would include Matthew too, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why? Because they didn't think of it first. <laughs> That's why. All these men were very much into who among their group should be considered the greatest. If you read the context, you'll see that that particular subject better popped up a lot of times. We know this also because Jesus went on to give the illustration of how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their people. Matthew 20, verse 25. And then he gives this charge to his disciples, all of them there, not so with you. I know that's what's going on in the world, but I better not see that among my church. He goes on. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life, their sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 25 and following. The word slave here, in this text is the Greek word doulos, which means a galley slave. The oarsman chained to his oar in the third tier down in the hold of the ship with all the sewage and the rats and the filth of disease. Far cry from the captain's quarters with linen sheets and fresh fruit on the table. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to become a galley slave. Service to others issues from a humble heart. Humble people do not think of themselves as being put upon to do less desirable tasks that would otherwise be frowned on by the proud. They just jump in the mud with both feet, gladly do whatever is necessary to aid others for their good. And love for others, particularly love for the brethren, will cause us to gladly bend the knee or lend a helping hand if it will lighten the burden others are bearing. That's what humble service is all about. We see it in the life of Christ. And he mentions that to his disciples because at this point in their ministry, they were still very proud, very arrogant. And they weren't about to do even for one another the things that the Lord was willing to do for them. What do we do if we have a proud heart? Well, that's the second point in your outline. A heart is humbled by, emphasis on that, by consistent service to others. Suppose like Matthew, you were to admit that the reason you were so angry with your fellow brethren was because they thought of a way to advance their status that you wished you had thought of first. 
If your sin is pride, and all of us have that to some extent, then service to others, service to others is the remedy that will humble you. This is a biblical principle. Critics have questioned the humility of Moses because he dared to write about himself in Numbers 12 and verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. We know that he wrote the first five books of the Bible. The critics read that and they say, Moses is tooting his own horn. How can he possibly be true that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth when he is the one writing that? That's not humility. That's outright bold-faced pride of the basest sort. Those who criticize Moses do not understand. They do not understand the biblical doctrine of inspiration of the scriptures. They don't understand it. Let me give it to you. All scripture, I'm reading scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. god Breathed. This is a compound word in Greek. Theo, from which we get God, theos. Theology, the study of God. And you add the ology part to whatever. Anthropology, the study of man. Theology, the study of God. Theo, and then the second part of the word, pneumatos. Pneumatos means breath, air. Breathe. Theo. Pneumatos. God. Breathe. We use the word pneumatic tools. All the guys know what those are. Pneumatic tools are those tools that are run on compressed air. Nail guns, uh, staplers, impact wrenches. They're pneumatic tools. You pump up that air in that compressor, snap a tool onto it, and as long as there's air there, it'll run that tool. The scripture is theo-pneumatics. God breathed. Okay. What is God breathed? He says the scriptures are God breathed. Good question. What's the scriptures? The Greek word for this, and we're getting Greek lessons this morning, is the Greek word graphe, which means literally what is written down. Used to be, I don't know if it's still true, but your pencil was filled with graphite, right? Remember those Dixon pencils were wonderful, weren't they? I don't know if they still make them anymore. I, these cheap things that come from overseas, they're not quite as wonderful. <laughs> but those Dixon pencils we used to have in school, that, that was, they were filled with graphite. So that we used the graphite tool to write down what needed to be written down. So what is, 
What's the scripture saying here? What is Paul saying? He's saying what has been written down by the human secretaries, in this case Moses, has been God-breathed. Not Moses' thoughts, but God's thoughts. And the stenographer never gets credit for the dictation that he or she writes down. That's why we say that the scripture is God's word, even though Moses is sitting there with his stylus and writing it down. Peter reinforces this when he explains, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. And of course he's talking about his writings and whatever else has been written in the scriptures. Now, all of that being true, let me put it this way. All of that being true, Moses had to describe his own character as the most humble man on the face of the earth because that was God's evaluation of him. It's very similar to the evaluation God makes of Job in the first chapter of Job when he talks to Satan and says, you know, there's, there's no man on all the earth like Job. The only difference here is that Moses is writing under inspiration of the Spirit of God. He could not have written otherwise and still be faithful to God's word on the matter. Now I've said all that to say this. Moses' humility was evident in the many ways he served Israel. Wow. He went to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh about their freedom. He went there when he was age 80. He went there when he saw himself as unqualified to be a spokesman. He starts out in utter humility. God, I can't do that. I can't go down there. Pharaoh, you know, those guys, I'm not a spokesman, Lord. I stammer and, you know, I, I, I have problems with my speech and, and can't you find somebody else? When the Israelites sinned against God by worshiping the golden calf, it was Moses who interceded for them when God had said, I'm, stand back Moses, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them all out. And then I'm going to start new with you. We'll start with a new father of the race. It'll be Moses, not Abraham. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. What do you mean I can't do that? If you do that, the Egyptians will accuse you of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt just so you could bring them into the wilderness to kill them and your glory will be besmirched among the nations. You see his humility, brethren? And time and time again, Moses stepped in on 
behalf of the Israelites when God would have wiped them out for their complaining and their grumbling. How many times did that happen in the wilderness? Ten times, the scripture says, that happened in the wilderness. He stopped the plagues that were destroying their own number. He raised a brass snake to bring healing to those who had been bitten by poisonous vipers because of God's judgment. He was in every way the servant of the nation, which accounts for his humility. You see? I don't think the man could think about himself. I think whatever he did, he thought, this, these are my people. They need, they need help. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the principle holds. A heart is humbled by consistent service to others. In Matthew 25, verse 34 and following, we read, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now there are many lessons to learn from this account. But I draw your attention to the attitude of the people whom Jesus addressed. They were living out the Christian principle of love for the brethren as best they could. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, showing hospitality to strangers and so on. But unlike the Hollywood crowd and the people of the world, they were not keeping score. They were not doing what they did for the praise and recognition of men. There was no pride here. You say, well, how do we know there wasn't? Because when Jesus listed all the things that they had done, they said, Lord, when did we? When did we? You see, their service to others made them humble. They had no clue that Jesus took it as a personal service to him when they lovingly responded to their brothers in need. Pride is checked when we go about serving others out of love for God and not for the applause and recognition of men. Now I am pleased to say, brethren, that we have people in our church who serve like this. They do. You will never know it. They work behind the scenes, unannounced, unrecognized, buying church supplies for the kitchen, repairing broken equipment, winterizing the building, mowing the grass in the summer, shoveling the walks in the winter, visiting the shut-ins. Unassuming, humble people 
who could care less about applause or remuneration. They just have a grasp of the principle Jesus taught. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Our verse of the week, Acts 20, verse 35. So if we're having problems with pride, the way to gain humility is to become the servant of others. Now that brings us then to the principles of service. What are some of these? Number one, Jesus has called all of his people to follow his example. When the disciples became indignant with James and John for trying to pull a fast one on them by using their mother to ply a favor from Jesus, the Lord rebuked them all, saying, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 10, verse 26 through 28. Whether it is Jesus with a basin and a towel, or setting his face resolutely towards Jerusalem and the execution awaiting him there, the principle of self-sacrifice was something the Lord wanted his disciples to emulate in him. We saw this as well in the foot-washing debacle. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him, John 13, verse 16. It's just his way of saying, I'm the master, you already recognize that. Why aren't you serving like me? Why, in the face of Jesus' own self-denial and personal condescension, would we ever think of a task of service as being somehow beneath us? The Son of God did not come as a king who expected to be served hand and foot. No, he came to serve and to give his life sacrificially as a ransom for many. In John 15, verse 13, he says, Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He did that for us. And John, who was there hearing that, used that sacrifice to define true love for the brethren. Here's the way he writes it in 1 John 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This will not always mean forfeiture of one's physical life, but it will always mean forfeiture of our pride. Selflessness does not come to us naturally. By nature we are self-centered and consumed with me, myself, and I. So Jesus says the first principle of service is practice my example. Practice my example. Selflessness is God's divine nature, but it's not ours. Secondly, service begins with those whom you ordinarily 
have common dealings with. We have this in our text, Ephesians 6. Verses 1 and following talk about the family of which we are a part. Now, not, the, not necessarily this family, the spiritual family, but our physical families. And what does it say? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, and here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1-3. The service role of children consists of two prongs. First prong, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, listen up. This is the first way you serve Christ. Notice the, the text says, in the Lord. This is the, when, you, when you're doing obedience to your parents, you're serving the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. Mom and dad are not always right in what they do, but they are your parents. God has placed them over you for instruction, particularly fathers, and discipline and correction when you stray down wrong or sinful paths. So the first prong of your service is obedience. The second prong of your service is this. Honor your father and mother. Honor shows you respect them for who and what they are and the good that they try to do on your behalf. God is watching. That's what this text is teaching. God is watching and His reward is for good service on your part in these areas. That it may go well with you. You want it to go well with you in your life? Obey and honor your parents. And you may enjoy a long life in the earth. And it's not talking about spiritual life here so much as your physical life. And I do not think that getting older means you can stop obeying and stop honoring. Whereas compliance results in God's blessings... Defiance results in God's judgment. Case in point. Esau despised his birthright and gladly sold it to Jacob for a bowl of soup. But he despised something else. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Badan Aram to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father. Now Jacob's in his 40s here. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So... He went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Genesis 28, verses 6 through 9. What did he do? He did the very opposite of obedience and honor. He did what he knew would displease his father and his mother. Esau's previous wives had already brought disharmony into the home. Rebekah had just said 
to Isaac, I've, I'm disgusted, I'm reading scripture, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. Those were Esau's wives. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Genesis 27, verse 46. And that's where we see thereafter Isaac saying, okay, Jacob calls him aside, sends him away to the homeland territory. You know what? God took note of Esau and what he did. And here's God's evaluation. We have it in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, no repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. Hebrews 12, verse 16 and 17. You know what? God just, he was cut off from God's family as well. And all because he could not bring himself to serve his mother and father by honoring them, by obeying their good counsel, and by appreciating the spiritual heritage that he had in that Christian home. God watches these things, kids. He does. Now secondly, what about parents? They have a service role in the family as well. Fathers, we read verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the Colossians text, which is the twin epistle of, of Ephesians, words it this way, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Colossians 3, verse 21. While it's quite true, quite true that a sassy or belligerent child is disobeying the law of Christ, showing disrespect for his or her parents, it can also be true that an overbearing parent has contributed to such behavior. Parenting, listen to me parents, parenting is not just bossing. It is leading by example. It is trying to see things from the heart of a child. It's trying to direct your orders and rules and disciplines in accord with the bent of the child's personality. And there is no such thing as one size fits all when it comes to children. Each is different. Each has his or her own personality. And if parents keep the reins too tight, the child is never going to mature through interaction with peers and by being able to make their own decisions, even if the decision is wrong. Solomon puts it this way, train up a child in the way he should go, the proper path. And when he's old, he will not turn from it. Proverbs 22, verse 6. It's a training process. I was watching a little segment on Fox News this morning. And the little segment was talking about helicopter parents. What's a helicopter parent? You know? 
And as the segment unfolded, here's what it is. A helicopter parent is a parent who hovers over his or her children in an obsessive, compulsive way, never allowing them any freedom to be who and what they are. Not mothering them, but smothering them. It takes some wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon, and by the way, Proverbs has a lot to say about child rearing. To know when to pull in the reins tighter and when to loosen up. Now listen to this. Paul was never, Paul was never a physical father, as far as we know. But he knew from God how to act as a father, and, and wonder of wonders, also as a mother. Say, ah, that's impossible, he couldn't be a mother. He, he learns from God how to do these things. He was the spiritual father to the churches of Corinth and Thessalonica, to whom he wrote, listen how he writes, We were gentle among you like a mother, Caring for her little children. Oh, well, that's my observation, but now we have it inscripturated. So, mothers, there's the role. He goes on. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You see his service? This is, he's serving the church like a mother. Why would he do that? Because, he goes on, you had become so dear to us. We read that and we say, boy, this is pretty feminist dialogue here. Caring, mothering, dear to us. Ooh, I can just see the men getting uncomfortable. This is all mother language, isn't it? He knew what he was talking about. He goes on. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. Oh, now there's a little different uh, tone here. Our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. He's saying he's earning his own way through tent making, which was his profession. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children. Now, now we got the father image, and that kind of goes along with working hard, earning your money, taking care of the family, right? Is that all there is to it, guys? You know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Here it is. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. What a marvelous text. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 12. Parents, this is how you serve your children in the name of Christ. How are you doing? 
So whether we are a child or a parent, service to Christ is part of being in a family. If we just jump back one chapter to Ephesians 5, he deals with husbands and wives who are the focus. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Matthew, or Ephesians 5 verse 24. In verse 33 he says the wife must respect her husband. This is your service to Christ, wives, as it, it cannot be dismissed without gross sin on your part. Likewise of husbands, Paul writes, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5 verse 25. And you see the service of sacrifice here. Christ sacrificed for the church. We sacrifice for our wives. Verse 33, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. How do we love ourselves? Well, we care for ourselves. How shall we love our wives? We care for our wives. We comfort them. We provide safety for them. We hold them in high regard. That ruby of whom Solomon speaks in describing the excellent wife. She's my ruby. She's precious to me. She's valuable. To me. So you see, whether you're a child or a parent, whether you're a wife or a husband, service begins in the family, and from there it spreads to other areas. These, these are just common relationships, aren't they? Well, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to the mission field. You need to serve the Lord right where you're at, in your family. I had a professor at Moody that said, no boat ever made a missionary. Took me a while to figure out what he was talking about. And what he was saying is that if you're not a missionary at home, you won't make a good missionary just because you cross the Atlantic. What about service in other areas? He mentions employer-employee relationships. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. With sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Boy, how's all this stuff getting in there? I'm going to work and Paul's talking about me serving the Lord and obeying Christ and Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. Our text, verses 5 through 8. Paul is saying, you know, you don't just work for General Motors. You don't just work for Ford or Chrysler. You work for Christ, the Lord. And that means you are the best employee that you can be, even when the earthly boss is not looking. So you're not going to get any brownie points. You're just going to be doing your thing. You serve Christ, first and foremost. You do not allow the union to dictate to conscience things that would be inappropriate if you were serving Christ, and you are. You do not curse the boss. You do not sabotage the project that's assigned to you because you have a grudge. 
You do not do sloppy or inadequate job. No, you serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord because you are. And there's joy in serving because of that. Oh, and if you are in the role of the boss or the supervisor, he says in verse 9, And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. See, he's there and he's watching. There's no favoritism with him. I read this text and I say, what a different world it would be if both employee and employer functioned this way. Well, we must, even if the world doesn't. It is our service to Christ. And his joy, his joy is our reward. Remember the story of the parable, the talents? His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Matthew 25, verse 23. See, if the Lord's watching, we enter into His joy and His happiness, His praise. And that's good enough for us. Now the world sometimes has a warped view of serving others to please God. They may be philanthropic because they are trying to work their way to heaven. And so doing good to others is one way they hope to win points with God. That's the wrong motive. And wrong motives blacken good deeds. You cannot buy salvation with the currency of service to others. Before any deed is defined as good and acceptable to God's sight, the motive must be for His glory, not your salvation. I'm afraid there's a lot of people out there working in the church or in religious circles for the wrong reasons. How is God glorified in salvation? It's when you honor the Son by placing your trust in Him and not in your service deeds. It's when you repent of the sins that separate you from God and His holiness. And this is what God gives when you ask Him. That's how you please. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, not good deeds, not service deeds, but by grace. If you don't know Christ, you can't buy him. He's not for sale. But he'll give you his life. He'll give you salvation. If you turn away from your sins and trust him, not yourself. And here again... Are we not back to the problem of pride? I can do this. I can do this. I can be good. I can keep the Ten Commandments. And I know, I just have this feeling that when push comes to shove, and in the day of judgment, 
God will weigh my good deeds over my bad deeds. If my good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, he'll throw open the pearly gates and say, Welcome. No, he won't. Jesus says in John 10, All that ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but I am the door of the sheepfold. Whoever enters into me shall come in and out and find pasture. What do we do with thieves and robbers? They come, try to come through the window or the chimney or whatever. We shoot them. Or we at least arrest them. They're incarcerated. They don't get to enjoy the privilege of what it is they're breaking in to get. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the door. Come through me. He also says, no man comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to heaven. There's one way to salvation. But it's a glorious way. It's through Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Have you come through him? Our Lord, thank you for your example of service to us. That though you were a king, you humbled yourself and became a man. And in your humanity, you became a servant. And in your servitude, you were obedient all the way to the cross. Who would have thought that God's Son would volunteer for crucifixion? But this was so. That you might save us from ourselves, from our sin, our biggest sin, which is pride. Lord, humble us today and give us a serving heart. If we're not humble, if we do have a problem with pride then help us to see that service to others on a consistent basis will begin to humble us. I pray that you'll do that. Help us to think of others. It's a good time of the year to think of others because we see your condescension in incarnation coming among us. And we remember not only your birth, but your life of sacrifice and giving, 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 giving to the disciples, even when they were foolish and sinful. How you bailed them out of their problems time and again and ultimately went to the cross that they might have their sins forgiven and life eternal. And we as your disciples enter into that same joy because the gospel they preach is the same gospel we have heard in which the Holy Spirit is used to draw us unto yourself. I pray that you will do that with any sinner here today that is still outside of your grace. Help them to stop working. Stop trying to keep the Ten Commandments to please you and earn their salvation. Grant them instead faith and repentance. O oh Lord, for your glory we pray these things and for their good. Amen.